one of the things that makes On Being a little different is that we release the unedited version of my entire conversation every week. We do this for transparency, but also so you can be with us from the very beginning of the production process if you'd like. You can hear everything from what my guests had for breakfast to the small chat between questions to the gems that we just can't fit into the produced episode. Listen to my unedited interviews wherever you download your podcasts or at onbeing.org. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. When I first met our now executive producer, Lily Percy, she was covering movies and religion at NPR. I still remember her saying to me, movies are my church. I think that's true for many of us. Movies can be whimsical, terrifying, culture-changing experiences where the big ideas we take up at On Being show up in the heart of our lives. They can inspire and repel and teach us what it means to be human. They're a place where we revisit personal history and history writ large. Now, as part of the growing On Being Studios, we're launching a new podcast with Lily called This Movie Changed Me. One fan talking about the transformative power of one movie every episode. We're going to dip into some of what she's hearing for the next hour, and I can't wait. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Sometimes I wonder about my life. I lead a small life. Well, valuable, but small. And sometimes I wonder, do I do it because I like it or because I haven't been brave? So much of what I see reminds me of something I read in a book when, shouldn't it be the other way around? I don't really want an answer. I just want to send this cosmic question out into the void. So, good night, dear void. If you've never seen You've Got Mail, the Meg Ryan Tom Hanks movie from 1998, you probably think that it's just another cliché romantic comedy. The plot certainly makes it seem like it. Two people in New York meet in an AOL chat room and fall in love without ever seeing each other. But if you've watched You've Got Mail, then you know the truth about this Nora Ephron classic. That it is actually about the power and importance of vulnerability in connecting with another human being. A vulnerability that sometimes only the anonymity of the internet can provide. This lesson, found at the center of You've Got Mail, changed Casper Turkow's life especially his love life. Casper is the co-host of the wonderful podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So, you know, I'm going to take you, I'm going to transport you to a little place right now, I hope. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but Mr. Rogers, when he, you know Mr. Rogers. I know you're not an American. I do. You do I know Mr. Rogers. about it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you learned about <laughs> Mr. Fred Rogers. Um, yes. When he was accepting his Lifetime Achievement Award at the Daytime Emmys, he did this amazing thing as part of his acceptance speech where he asked everyone in the room to take 10 seconds and think about Mm. all the people that brought them to where they were at that moment. Mm. And I'm not going to ask you to do that. (laughs) You can do that mentally while I'm talking. Um, But what I am going to ask you to do is to think back to the first time that you watched You've Got Mail and think about the way you felt, where you were, you know, how old you were, all of those things, and just kind of go back to that time when you first saw it. And I'll just look at the clock and I'll chime in when the 10 seconds are up. Okay. Thank you. So what memories came up for you when you were thinking about You've Got Mail and that first time you saw it? I think I saw it when I was maybe 14, uh, and I was a little 14-year-old queer kid in a boy's boarding house uh, at a very kind of fancy English school. And I felt so, um, I felt so alone. Like I Mm. I was so disconnected from the rest of the students. And I, I don't know, like I was bad at the things you were supposed to be good at. And I remember watching You've Got Mail. And I mean, first of all, obviously it's 
takes place in Manhattan. Oh, the magical <laughs> uh, so New York. A, it's a magical New, New York, York place, New York that doesn't right? exist, by the way. It's a New well, York that that's, you're nostalgic don't for. Don't ruin the illusion. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But it, but it was this dream of another place where people have, like, conversations about literature and yeah. they, you know, go on fancy dates and they live on a boat because they've left their you know, girlfriend yeah. or whatever it is. <laughs> and it just everything seemed shiny and beautiful and it was full and there were parks and, and fairs and you know it just seemed like this kind of adult world that I didn't yet have access to mm. that I longed for that's what I remember of, of kind of longing for not only their lifestyle but also love that you could find as an adult which I definitely wasn't finding as a, as a 14 year old. I love that you mentioned longing because that's the thing that it came through for me last night when I was watching it again for like the 30th time was <laughs> how much this movie captures that feeling of longing perfectly, yeah. what it feels to long for something and not just love, but just longing in general, just to be longing. And I think about you as a 14 year old and how that clearly came through to you. Oh, my God, Lily, it was so much worse. You know, there's this scene where. Kathleen Kelly, is played by Meg Ryan, kind of writes a missive to this man that she met in this chat room. Or this to Joe, person. She yeah. Right, she doesn't even know really who he is. And she says at some point, like, you know, I just wanted to write this down. So good night, dear void. You know, even if it's yes. just going to the void. Good night, dear void. And I remember, like, I wrote that in my diary to myself. <laughs> I, I really thought I was that oh kind of person. I'm just like, yeah, just like you have so many feelings. And yes. like, where is it all going? Going. And I yeah. think that's what I love about this movie is, yes, it's a love story, but they don't meet until the very last scene of the movie. The story is really about an idea of someone. And, you know, I met my husband online. So, you know, there's an echo in my own life here. But there is a the, the story and the love that builds inside both of these characters is one of of longing and a really projection onto the unknown of what might be. And I'm someone who always lives kind of in the future. I love to mm. think about future plans. And I think this movie is so much about that, that it's you get to create perfection in your mind before it even happens. Don't you love New York in the fall? It makes me want to buy school supplies. Oh. I'm almost ready. I would send you a bouquet of newly sharpened pencils if I knew your name and address. On the other hand, this not knowing has its charms. Dear friend, I like to start my notes to you as if we're already in the middle of a conversation. I pretend that we're the oldest and dearest friends as opposed to what we actually are, people who don't know each other's names, and met in a chat room where we both claimed we'd never been before. What will NY152 say today, I wonder? I turn on my computer. I wait impatiently as it connects. I go online and my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. So I love that you talked about how the fact that you met your husband online. And I wonder if, you know, especially rewatching this movie, if there are lessons that you've carried into your relationship, lessons about love that this movie has taught you. Hmm. I think the thing that it really taught me was that the person that we think we want to fall in love with is often the very opposite of the person who we should really fall in love with, mm. right? In so many ways, these two characters are ill-suited for each other. They have different values about their work. They end up in real conflict around their yeah. work, especially. And I remember I thought I wanted some, like, big, hunky, rugby-playing kind of guy. Mm. And the man who I ended up meeting online and falling in love with and marrying was a musician, a classical musician who sang opera and who loves aesthetic things of beauty and creates, you know, everything he makes is beautiful, whether it's laying the dining table, cooking a dish or, or singing, you know, a concert. Um, and I never thought that's what I really wanted. And I, I don't know, I think there's something something in that of the thing that maybe will make us most happy is the thing we least expect to fall in love with. Hmm. And then maybe it happens in your body before it even happens in your mind. Like you can't even yes. intellectualize it or understand it. And you have to really I trust mean, that. Yeah. That's what she says. Three mm -hmm. little words. I've got mail from you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's like she feels it in anticipation. Yeah. Before she's really able to 
to explain it. And even when he stood her up, you know, she's like, it's not rational to continue a conversation with that person when they've done something that has, you know, has hurt you in that way. But I don't know, there's this powerful connection there, which she's willing to trust and, and try again. I love that. I hope you have a good reason for not being there last night. You don't seem like the kind of person that would do something like that. The odd thing about this form of communication is that you're more likely to talk about nothing than something, but I just want to say that all this nothing has meant more to me than so many somethings. So thanks. was a long time ago, longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told took place in the holiday worlds of old. Now, you probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun. Tim Burton's 1993 movie musical, The Nightmare Before Christmas, does a remarkable job of capturing what it means to be an outsider, to not quite fit in, in the light or in the darkness. The story follows Jack Skellington, the king of Halloween Town, also known as the Pumpkin King, who becomes bored and decides he wants to take on a new challenge by taking over Christmas. The strangeness of this movie was life-changing for writer and radio host Ashley C. Ford, who has loved its creepy characters and music since she was a kid. This is Halloween, everybody make a scene, trick or treat. Tell the neighbors gonna die of fright, it's our time. Everybody's scream, this time of Halloween. I am the one hiding under you. I know you've talked about on Twitter that you love writing uh, to music scores, and I can only imagine that this has been kind of in the rotation for you. Tell me about your Absolutely. favorite songs in the movie. Oh, Okay. Um, I'm not going to ask you to sing them unless you want to. Then you can feel free. Like I might just because that's what's in my heart. (laughs) There's some mornings I wake up and then I'm not even kidding. The first thing I I hear in my head is, what's this? What's this? What's this? Smell is everywhere. (laughs) What's this? There's bright things in the air. I love it. Exactly. It's so infectious. I actually, my favorite songs are probably... Obviously, this is Halloween, which oh, I think yeah. is a brilliant opening song. Oh my God, yeah. Um, and then Jack's Lament is amazing to me. Like, that's the, you know, Christmas time is buzzing in my skull. Will it let me be? I cannot tell. Mm. There's so many things I cannot grasp. First, I think I've got it, and then it lasts. Through my bony fingers, it does slip like a snowflake in a fiery grip. You know, and it's yes. just, oh, I so love good. that I'm song. crying here listening to you talk I'm sorry. and sing. <laughs> I love Jack's Lament. And then um, I actually really like the song right at the end when um, Sally, after she has basically sabotaged the love of her life to get him to understand that, like, this is a bad idea. Um, she's standing on the top of that oh, hill. Yeah. And, and the moon is just, in the background. And the moon is in yeah. the background. And he just shows up. And the thing that I loved about, like, the Jack and Sally romance was that it it was really a friendship. Even yeah. if there was a little bit of unrequited love on her end, it's like she was his friend. And she would have been his friend no matter what. You know what I mean? Like, they yeah. never had to get together. But in those final moments, he recognizes that, like, this is a person who cares for me so much that she did not let me destroy myself. My dearest friend, if you don't mind, I'd like to join you by your side. Where we can gaze into the stars and sit together now and forever. Simply 
You know, one of the things that I love about movies is that every time you watch them, and especially as you get older, they change for you and you learn new things and you see things differently. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder how this movie has changed for you as you've gotten older and, and you've kept watching it. How have you guys grown together? I think the way we've grown together is that as I've gotten older, I've recognized more and more that uh, nobody can be summed up by the best or worst thing they've ever done. Mm. And I think this movie is a great reflection (laughs) on that, that there is like this, there is light and shadow in all of us and that we will always be attracted to, you know, what's different. But what's different isn't always necessarily right for who we are. And we have to take a moment um, to really think about who we are and what we enjoy and what we love. And I think another thing, revelation, um, not even a revelation because I heard it from Fran Lebowitz. Like I can't act like I was sitting around and I was like, aha. (laughs) Um, But Fran Lebowitz has this thing that she said um, in an interview where somebody asked her about happiness. And she said, one of the biggest mistakes we make about happiness or in defining happiness is that we think of it as a condition. Mm. And happiness is not a condition. It's a sensation. Mm -hmm. Happiness is not something that you can hope to maintain at all times. We should never be thinking we should always be happy. We should just know that moments of happiness will come. They'll always come. And we can look forward to the next moment of happiness. And one of the things that I kept thinking about the last, actually the last time I watched the movie was the fact that Jack sincerely thought he was always supposed to be happy and satisfied by his work. And it's like the lesson that I think he ultimately learns is, oh, I don't have to tear down my whole life. Mm-hmm. to find happiness or to find fulfillment or satisfaction. Ultimately, what he realizes in the end is that like, he still loves Halloween. And the only reason he loved the Christmas that he created was because it was so much like Halloween. Exactly. Um, but he is the pumpkin king. Yes, but he is the pumpkin king. And there is a reason why he's the pumpkin king. And it does have to do with his passion for Halloween and his ability to continue to make Halloween better and better and better. Like, it's it's the thing where you you do what you can where you are with the time you have. And with the gifts that you have, right? Yes, and with the gifts that you have. And I think that that's what he got in the end, and that's sort of what I'm beginning to get about my life, that, you know, I sometimes get really caught up in all the things that I can't do <laughs> mm, <laughs> or yeah. all the things that, you know, I'm not good at. And I'm like, man, why can't I be good at that? Something would be easier. I would be more, you know, whatever if I could do that thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that what I really have to understand sometimes about myself is that I do have a gift. You know, writing and communicating and connecting with people that way is my gift. Well, it's about and, like further knowing who you are and accepting who you are. yes. Yes, there is a great acceptance at the end of The Nightmare Before Christmas that I understand in my life now so much more than I did as a child. So much more. And I love that that film reaffirms that truth for me. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the power of movies to shape and change our lives, as told through conversations from our new podcast, This Movie Changed Me, with Lily Percy. I came to America in 1914 by way of Philadelphia. That's where I got off the boat. And then I came to Baltimore. It was the most beautiful place you've ever seen in your life. 
There were lights everywhere. What lights they had. It was a celebration of lights. I thought they were for me. Sam was in America. Sam was in America. People ask me all the time because I write about movies for Entertainment Weekly, like, what's your favorite movie? And I mm. think, I feel like they expect me to say Star Wars because I write about Star Wars. Because you're like the or, official Star Wars reporter, yeah. Yeah, or to say something, you know, uh, name some Oscar winner, like, you know, some a classic film. And Avalon, is it from, it's from 1990, it's right? 1990, or 91? yeah. It's 1990. yeah. It didn't win any awards. I don't think many people saw it. I don't think it did, like, tremendous box office. And I didn't see it until I was in my 20s. But it's the movie I treasure most. And I watch it a couple of times a year. I always watch it around Thanksgiving because so many of those family scenes in the film are set around Thanksgiving. Every time I think of Avalon, which is about a family that comes from Russia... I automatically want to start crying. Not because anything horrible or dramatic actually happens in the movie. Quite the opposite, actually. I want to start crying because the family at the center of Avalon also reminds me of my own Colombian immigrant family. The struggles that come with moving to a new country and the way that the passage of time, the many births and deaths, leave marks on all of us. It was so clear to me that Sam... You know, the character that Armin Müller-Stahl plays in Avalon. I mean, I don't want to say he is your grandfather, but I mean, there's so many kind of parallels. And I, I wonder if that was one of the things that really, really touched you when you first saw Avalon. Well, absolutely. And um, by the time I saw it, my grandfather was gone. He had died when I was 19. And Avalon is this story, you know, the two men, the, the grandfather played by Armin Mueller-Stahl has this great relationship with his grandson, who's played by Elijah Wood when he was like 10 years old. And the grandfather tells these stories. The movie begins with him telling the story of how he came to America. And my grandfather was born here in America. His parents were Belgian immigrants. His father was a glass manufacturer who was brought over from, from Belgium to, mm. to help manufacture window glass, you know. So he was part of that immigrant experience, and uh, his parents knew what it meant to leave their home and come to this new country and set up a life. And there's so many similarities. The house painting, the wallpaper hanging. Well, yeah, that, that, when, I, when that happened in the movie, I was like, oh, come on. Exactly. Like, I was like, they like, wrote this for you. <laughs> Barry Levinson yeah. wrote this for you. Because I was already like, oh, he tells this story about, you know, Sam Kaczynski is the name of the character. He tells this story at the beginning of the movie about coming to America. And, and it reminded me so much of stories my grandfather would tell about being a kid in Ford City, Pennsylvania. And, and, uh, and then, then he's a wallpaper hanger and a, and a painter. And I'm like, come on, this is too, am I like being punked here? (laughs) Yeah. But that's, you know, sometimes the universe gives you these interesting little cosmic coincidences, but like they're Jewish in the film. My family was Catholic, but like otherwise, (laughs) they're like exactly the same. And it reminds me how similar people are really. We think we're so different or we have these different cultures, but really they're all sort of variations on a theme. I think people, families are so much more alike than they are different. As you were kind of uh, talking through some of the moments that you love in the movie, I was reminded of a line that I know you love. Um, you know, when Sam is seeing that grown-up grandson for, for well, not for the first time, for but for us, we see the grown-up grandson for the first time in the kind of like senior citizen's home that he lives in now. Yeah. And he says that, if I knew that things would no longer be, I would have tried to remember better. Ugh, Ugh that line. Yeah. If I knew that things would no longer be there, I would have tried to remember better. Like Sam at this point in the movie is, he's got to be in his 90s. Yeah. And he's not all there, but he's enough of him is there that you can still detect the man that we know from the earlier parts of the movies. And is he's what I thought was cool is his grandson is talking to him, but his great-grandson is in the room yes. too. And the little boy is watching, I think he's watching like the Thanksgiving Day Parade on, on TV. TV. Yeah. So he's not even really paying attention. And, and later, he, as he's walking out with his dad, he says, that guy talks funny. <laughs> yeah. And his father says, well, he wasn't born here. Yeah. And he starts telling the same story that we heard at the very beginning of the movie about how Sam came to America. And that 
Even I'm not even watching it right now, but that chokes me up. <laughs> no, we gotta we gotta stop it. We gotta stop it. <laughs> it's so true. So whenever somebody says, "Hey, what's your favorite movie?" and I don't say Star Wars, and they look a little disappointed, <laughs> and instead I say Avalon, and they go, "What's that?" Exactly. I actually feel. I don't know if anybody has ever actually, on my recommendation, sought it out, but I just think you are so lucky because I. I wish I could watch this movie for the first time again because it so moved me. But every time I watch it, uh, it it still has that same power. Daddy, that man talks funny. Well, he wasn't born here, Sam. You mean he wasn't born in Baltimore? No. He came to America in 1914. He said it was the most beautiful place he'd ever seen. All the voices you've been hearing are abbreviated versions of episodes from On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. One fan talking about the transformative power of one movie. It's just launched on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe there or wherever you download your favorite shows. You can, of course, also listen again to this and all of our audio at onbeing.org. Coming up, David Green on Star Wars, Gabrielle Balot on Miyazaki's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and Reuben Blades on the Oxbow Incident. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, This Movie Changed Me with Lily Percy. Fire them up. I suppose it's no good telling you again that we're innocent. No good. It's not for myself I'm asking. Other men with families who had to die for this sort of thing. It's too bad, but it's justice. Justice? What do you care about justice? You don't even care whether you've got the right men or not. All you know is you've lost something and somebody's got to be punished. I tell you, there's nobody to look out for them. They're in a strange place. Can't you understand that, you butcher? This is a fine company for a man to die with. The 1943 noir western, The Oxbow Incident, is set in a town where a murder happens, or so they think. And a group of men, a posse, goes after the strangers who have been accused of the murder. It's a story about vigilante justice, about what happens when crowds gather together in anger and throw away the law as a result. The Oxbow Incident changed the life of my hero, Ruben Blades. Ruben is a highly respected and beloved salsa musician, a leader in Latin American politics, an actor known as Ruben Blades here in the U.S. But something that is not as well known about him is that he's also a lawyer. He earned his law degree in Panama in 1972 after recording his first album. And then in 1985, at the height of his career, he took a year off to get his master's in international law at Harvard University. I'm curious, you talk about how this influenced you as a lawyer, um, what lessons did you learn and carry from from that movie that, that really led you? Well, the need that justice must be, that the ideal must be defended in order for it to exist. It's not enough to speak about justice. You really have to enforce it. Hmm. Um, so I, I felt I wanted to, to be on the right side uh, of history. I mean, I, I saw that and I, I suffered. It, it pained me. Hmm. to experience what those men had experienced. Hmm. It's just as if I, they hung me or a part of me yeah. as well that, that day. You know, it's like, and it was irreversible. Hmm. That's another thing that affected me. I thought 
gosh, when this happens, people are totally without any type of protection. They just succumb. That's yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. And mm. I thought, well, the system has to make people aware of our own capability of, of being wrong mm. and uh, not to take the law by our own hands. I mean, yeah. and again, this is a situation where people who are not actively supporting the misdeed actually become accomplices of it for not saying anything. That was another thing that I remember that I mm. got out of that of the film. I mean, yeah. you have to talk about it. You have to be a part of it. You have to denounce it. You have to mm. accept that you're wrong or accept wrong. Yeah, and, and speak and up in the it. moment. And they didn't. Mm-hmm. They did not because they felt they didn't have all the information that they could have been wrong. And although they did not approve of it, they ended up joining the wrong. Mm. And I remember feeling about that and thinking, well, how many times do we do that? Yeah. Every day. My dear wife, Mr. Davies will tell you what's happening here tonight. He's a good man and has done everything he can for me. I suppose there's some other good men here too, only they don't seem to realize what they're doing. They're the ones I feel sorry for, because it'll be over for me in a little while, but they'll have to go on remembering for the rest of their lives. Man just naturally can't take the law into his own hands and hang people without hurting everybody in the world, because then he's just not breaking one law, but all laws. You know, my favorite scene in the movie comes right before the very end, when Gil Carter, who's played by Henry Fonda, he reads that letter that Donald Martin wrote to his mm. wife, right? Oh, God. <laughs> right before he was hung. Um, yep. So he reads it to the men in the bar. After, after everything has happened, all the men go to the bar to drink. And it's such a powerful scene because yeah. all we hear is Gil reading the letter. There's no music. Um, there's nothing to manipulate us, just the words. Another great choice. Another great choice. And in today's uh, sensitivities, you know, somebody might just come up with this incredibly, you know, huge orchestra. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This particular case, I mean, it was just, and, and that's the dignity that I believe um, the director, um, he, he decided to, uh, to keep it real. Yeah. And trust his audience. He didn't feel that the audience had to be manipulated into... Uh, cued into like feeling as many movies that I do. And it's more powerful because of it. Absolutely. I remember when I saw the movie, I remember the in the theater, in the hushed, completely silent, blackout theater, people sobbing. Hmm. You could actually go to a movie in those days and have an a audience participation. People cry yeah. and, and laughed and 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 talked back to the screen, and I don't see much of that now. Yeah, I think people people do talk a lot now <laughs> because they think they're home. Exactly, uh, but in a very different way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not in a constructive way. No, well, it's because a movie was the center of your universe in a lot of ways. That was where you went to to be together, other than church. Yeah, absolutely, and also because it was a place that was respected. Mm. It was. A poor man's opera. <laughs> you went yeah. there and you sat down and, and you behaved. Mm. When I think about your career, um, I mean, I grew up listening to your music and being inspired by you as an activist, as someone who fights for what is right um, and talks about what's wrong in your music as well as in your law and your politics. And I, I think about so much of your work being about that justice, right, that seeking justice for people who've been wronged, about how often we are judgmental to, towards one another. And, and how many times we are quiet about it. Yes, yeah. and how many times we are quiet. And it's no coincidence to me that you've been the opposite of quiet, right? You've stood up and spoken and used your voice in every possible way. It's interesting because I don't portray myself as a hero. I was just upset. I was just angry, actually. And I wrote my songs always from the perspective of a different opinion because I always felt that it made people who were feeling those things feel less lonely. That was basically it. I, I wanted people to know that they were not alone. 
That's what I that's what I thought. And I think you gave voice to those who didn't have a voice in your songs. Well, I was one of the people. I mean, other people did a lot more than I ever did. Um, there were so many people all throughout in those days in Central America mm-hmm. and South America who were being killed for standing up for for mm-hmm. justice, basically. So, um, yeah, but I figured I'm going to write about that, too. And, and I'm mm-hmm. sure that it, it was a consequence just as it was to, for me to go study law. Part of it was that desire to prevent the, the sort of things that I saw when I was very young, exemplified in film. such thing as civilization unless people have a conscience because if people touch God anywhere where is it except through their conscience and what is anybody's conscience except a little piece of the conscience of all men that ever lived I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the power of movies to shape and change our lives, as told through conversations from our new podcast, This Movie Changed Me, with Lily Percy. For our next movie, we're delving into the world of the 1984 Japanese anime Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. It's a hard movie to describe because the plot has so many layers, but it's essentially about a princess, Princess Nausicaa, who's trying to survive and help her community survive amidst the crumbling world around her. The movie was made by the revered Japanese filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, who's known for creating female characters who defy the stereotypes and limitations of their genders and are adventurers, soldiers, agents of their own lives. By modeling a world where gender is of no consequence, as Miyazaki does in Nausicaa, he directly changed the life of trans woman and writer Gabrielle Balot. I think about something you cited in, in this piece you wrote for The Atlantic about, uh, which I think was taken from an interview that Hayao Miyazaki did with Roger Ebert. And um, you talk about the his moments and the creation of his moments of ma or emptiness. Yeah, and, you know, this is something that is very much what I think of, you know, when I think of the reason that Miyazaki's film seems so different because I was actually re-watching uh, Alien again recently and as I was looking at uh, Miss Ripley waiting for the alien to mm. appear down a hall it made me think of how you know horror movies utilize something similar but quite different you know these moments of emptiness yeah. in which uh, something is not really happening But the difference to me is that, you know, as Miyazaki says, these are moments that are not meant to, like, create suspense. So somebody is combing their hair or somebody is just looking at the sky or somebody is just Mm -hmm. uh, putting on clothes or something. And technically, it doesn't have to be there. I mean, you could remove it and, the, you know, the pace would quicken. But I think it would be worse because we would be losing something about the characters, something that makes them into who they are supposed to be. And that's what really, I think, defines Miyazaki-esque in part, Mm. that we have these moments that don't need to be there, but absolutely need to be there, the sort of presence and absence. Yeah, I think of in Nausicaa when when we see her in the very beginning, you know, sitting among the spores, daydreaming, when she's walking through the wheat fields as a little girl, like all these moments that add so much, um, I can't quite explain why, but they add a lot of humanity and, and vulnerability. Like you get, you feel vulnerable with the character when you're watching these moments. I agree. And, you know, I think it's partly because... Those really are moments that are human. I mean, it's easy to forget, in a sense, you know, 
what it means to be human, uh, mm. even as a member of this unfortunate species, because we can <laughs> sort of forget all of the emptiness that we have in our daily life. Mm. You know, we're waiting for the train or checking our phone, not really expecting something. And that's something that you honestly just don't get to see in lots of movies. And so I sort of like to think of it as, you know, Milton tells us that he's going to show us the ways of God to man. And I sort of think of Miyazaki as, in some sense, improving on this. He's he's showing us the ways of world to human. Mm. And so we really get to see what it's like to be us, even if we're in a world that is not, you know, like one that we would recognize. Lord Yupa! <laughs> Nausicaa, I didn't recognize you. It's been over a year now. It's great to see you. Thank you for helping me with that arm. You've certainly mastered that glider of yours. Lord Yupa, there's something I want to show you when we get back to the valley. I've created my own secret room. Oh. I haven't shown it to anyone yet because I think it'll frighten them. You get to be the first. I'll go on ahead and announce you. See you there. Something that I so appreciated is something you touched upon earlier during our conversation about the androgyny of her character. And the thing that I didn't pick up on initially was that other than people calling her princess, which is has a connotation of being a woman, she doesn't really have any kind of restrictions. Um, they don't treat her in the kind of role of a woman. Like, she just does what she does. She does it freely. She's accepted. Um, she was just allowed to be herself. I mean, I, I do think you're spot on because, you know, th- there's really no explicit sense that because of what she is, uh, she needs to slow down or yeah. she needs to uh, not talk back to this person or something. Yeah. I do think there or might be... go ask be... permission from her father. I kept being like, yeah. she's not asking anyone for permission. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. Her, um, her bravery is on a fleek in this movie. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, But the thing is that, you know, she's not just one of those characters who is, you know, sort of unstoppable. She's not this archetype of perfection. And you can tell that she not only can be beaten, but is on the verge of being emotionally beaten. Yeah. And I love it because you know that she is exceptionally tough, but you know as well that she can be broken. Don't move. Nausicaa, be calm. If you fight now, the people of the valley will be massacred. We must stay alive and wait for the right opportunity. Darth Vader, only you could be so bold. The Imperial Senate will not still for this. When they hear you've attacked a diplomatic... Don't act so surprised, Your Highness. You weren't on any mercy mission this time. Several transmissions were beamed to the ship by rebel spies. I want to know what happened to the plans they sent you. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. You are part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take it away! The first time that I saw Princess Leia in Star Wars, in 1977's Episode 4, A New Hope, I remember thinking that she was kind of like the Che Guevara of the Rebel Alliance. Princess Leia, embodied beautifully by the late great Carrie Fisher, was the first time that many little girls saw a female leader on screen, and it left an impression on a generation of women that grew up in its wake. But it wasn't just women that were affected by the power of Princess Leia. She also changed the lives of men and shaped the way that men saw women. That's what NPR host David Green felt when he first saw her in Star Wars. So I'm so fascinated by uh, something that you mentioned when you first said that you were going to pick this movie. You talked about the wanderlust. Mm-hmm. You know, you also talked about how it allowed you to really see powerful women and respect powerful women. And I wonder if you can just tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you were raised by a single mom. Yep. So clearly this powerful woman was always part of your life. But yep. what did you see in Star Wars that kind of reinforced that? I mean, from the moment that Princess Leia confronted Darth Vader on that ship, she showed 
not an ounce of fear. Her face fear. is just Her face, stone. it is stoic. It is like only you would be so bold. Yeah. And she is standing there ready to confront him. And he could have pulled out a lightsaber and destroyed her in a second flat. And she knows that. And, I mean, she was absolutely fearless. Yep. And I think it really drove home the power of a strong woman. And I knew that because I was raised by one. Uh, but throughout the movie, I mean, I, I remember just being enchanted by that. And, you know, I mean, she owned Han Solo. And, I mean, <laughs> his, like, just ridiculous, naive attempts to woo her. Yeah. And, you know, she just owned that relationship. I don't know who you are or where you came from. But from now on, you do as I tell you, okay? Look, your worshipfulness, let's get one thing straight. I take orders from just one person, me. So one day you're still alive. I remember being devastated when in Jedi, in Return of the Jedi, when she was sort of enslaved by Jabba the Hutt and, and made to wear that bikini because, mm. you know, I mean, I know it's been a much debated scene from that yeah, movie. Yeah. But it was it was painful to me because yeah. it was... It was like it, the ultimate debasement of her. It was. And I think yeah. I was, I, I don't know, I mean, I was, I can't remember when Jedi came out, but I was like teenager probably. And... I didn't know the word objectification, yeah. um, and I didn't know like, words like demeaning, but I was like, that's wrong. Yeah. This is a strong woman who is now, and it, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Han Solo was frozen, and yeah. that didn't bother me. But to see Leia <laughs> like that, like that was, that was, that was really, it. really, really painful. Oh, David, so enlightened you are. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> well, you're married to a very strong woman. I am. Yourself, and you- A lot stronger than I am. <laughs> and you know it, and that's- her power. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you co-owned this amazing bar restaurant with her, Compass Rose. She owns it. We should be very clear. She owns yes. it. Okay, I, you just, I'm probably involved, but yeah. She's <laughs> the owner a, and the she's boss. She's the owner. Yeah. She's the owner yeah. and the boss. Um, I was trying to bring you in there, yeah, but okay. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Throw me a bone. Um, and I know that there's a very famous bar scene yeah. in Star Wars. Love it. That is my favorite scene by is far. It? Oh my God. Do you because hear the music sometimes? I when? do. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things where you automatically hear that music and how can you not picture all the creatures that are in that bar and how weird they look? There's one dude who I've never known what he is, but he's like doing something to like something that sticks out of his mouth. Yep. I mean, it's just like, disgusting. It's everyone just is, like everyone is different and weird and wonderful. And they're just chilling there and drinking. And I just wanted to show that that's my favorite scene and wondered what your favorite scenes are. That was, that was my favorite scene. Yeah. And and I have loved bars ever since then. Because <laughs> of the weird characters that hang the, out? Because of the weird characters. And a bar is a really special place. You yeah. walk in and you feel uncomfortable. You feel a little out of place vulnerable. in the very beginning, really vulnerable, as we saw with Luke. I mean, yeah. he, he almost got killed and he needed Obi-Wan Just to save him. Just because they didn't like what he looked like. Just because they didn't like what he looked like. <laughs> Which was great, wasn't it? Because yeah. he's probably like objectively the best looking person in that bar with a bunch of weird looking aliens and he's the one who is different exactly. and that was not we lost don't on like me your either, face. Which, right exactly which is kind of beautiful he doesn't like you i'm sorry i don't like you either you just watch yourself we're wanted men i have the death sentence on 12 systems i'll be careful You'll be dead! This little one's not worth the effort. Come, let me get you some. But a bar, like the whole relationship with a bar is is how quickly does that discomfort go away? Mm. How quickly can you, you know, make a connection and begin yeah. to feel comfortable? And that's the whole narrative and cool thing Mm. about a bar. It's a place that's always open or almost always open. And it's almost a friend. And we're going to meet wacky characters who are completely different. You're going to be exposed to people or aliens who you would never come in contact with elsewhere. Yeah. It's kind of like an equalizer. I mean, I know there are classy bars and dive bars, but I feel like it's a place where you meet all kinds of people, different backgrounds, some people with money, some people with no money. Everyone's there. Just to be with someone else. It's kind of that idea of being alone together. Absolutely. 100%. There, yeah. there was a place in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in Harvard Square, where I, I would go often during college um, called The Tasty. And it was just one of those greasy spoon <laughs> cheeseburger joints where they had cheeseburgers 24 hours a day that oh, were delicious. And you could go there. There could be someone who was homeless and was trying to find just a place to stay warm and mm-hmm. get a cup of coffee. There could be a hipster. There could be a poet. 
There could be a college professor. There could be someone who had gotten back from a Red Sox game and was just wasted. And it was just this collection of, I mean, people from all walks of life. I remember whenever I went in there, I was always reminded of the Star Wars scene because it was exactly (laughs) like that, you know, at a human level. But it it was exactly like that. David Green, interviewed by Lily Percy. This hour, you also heard Casper Ter Kyle, Ashley C. Ford, Anthony Bresnikan, Ruben Blades, and Gabrielle Balot. These are just some of the voices from On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. One fan talking about the transformative power of one movie every episode. And in the full episodes, you hear so much more of the movies and rich conversation. I promise you'll love it. You can download This Movie Changed Me on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite shows. And as always, listen again to this show and all of our podcasts at onbeing.org. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Malka Fenevesi, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bettina Davis, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, and Kristen Lynn. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the Henry Luce Foundation in support of public theology reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.